When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humbled and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. In the morning, when he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing at all on it but leaves. Then he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith you will receive. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. 
But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. That was great. Thanks, Jess. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. We've got this really fun section of Matthew to go through this morning. Um, So I just want to start by asking a couple questions. Uh, My theme of what I pulled out of this section is appearance versus substance. So I'm going to ask a couple questions. And then what really got me excited about this section of the text was all of these references back to the Old Testament and these prophets of ancient Israel. And so we're going to spend some time a bit in the Old Testament this morning. And then we're going to wrap up with just some more questions and kind of how can we think about this section um, in reference to like where we live today in Helen, Montana. What can we kind of do with this information? Um, So I'm going to start our time together though by praying. So God, thanks for just this time this morning where we can be together. Um, Just help us to learn something new about you and who you are. We love you. Amen. So like I said, this theme that I pulled out of this section was appearance versus substance. And I I wanna ask this question, what if it's about more than appearances? So for example, have you ever bitten into a piece of fruit that looked really good, but it was rotten on the inside? Nobody. I did that this week with a grape and it was disgusting. Or maybe, maybe you have a car that like looks really nice, but it's got all these mechanical issues. You could take it to Jonah, he'll help you out. Or, or like I was thinking this week, so when I was in Bozeman, I rented an apartment. My friend and I rented this apartment and we, we toured it and it looked fine. I mean, it had bright green carpet, but other than that, it appeared fine. And it took about a week for the entire shower to get moldy. And so it was like this constant battle of I don't, mold or mildew or whatever. Of like, you could make it look really good, but I, I don't even want to know what the inside or like the structure of this house looked like. It was disgusting. But even like a decade ago, Renton Bozeman was crazy, so you kind of had to do whatever you had to do. So we've been in Matthew for quite a while, and Adam's pulled out this theme of two kingdoms. We have Herod's kingdom, and Herod has a way for thinking about how we live, how we do life, marriage, communication, family. There's all sorts of ways that kind of Herod's way or kingdom tells us how we should live. And then Jesus' kingdom. Jesus has some ideas and thoughts on how we should live our lives, how we're called to love one another, interact with one another, how we're called to communicate with one another. 
And so this morning I wanted to add on to that theme we've been going through, and I think that we can add appearance and substance. Herod's kingdom, or Herod's way of doing things, seems to be a lot about appearance, about looking good, about playing the part. And Jesus' kingdom seems to be more about substance, about the content of our character, and about our heart. So it seems like to me in Matthew 21, we start to see these two kingdoms clashing. They've been at odds, but it's like stuff's really starting to happen here. Like they're starting to clash. And so what's happening, I just wanna spend a lot of time going through this first half of Matthew 21. So I listened to a really good podcast called Exploring My Strange Bible by Tim Mackey. He's the founder of The Bible Project, and they have really good stuff. And so a lot of what I got for this message is from his podcast and his research. So I put it on your mind map if you want to listen. He does a great two-part thing where he goes to the first half of Matthew 21 and the second half. So I recommend listening to that. But what do we see happening here? So Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and now, during our church calendar today, this is the beginning of Holy Week. We would typically hear this read on Palm Sunday. All right, it's the start of the last week of Jesus' life. But when he's riding into Jerusalem then, it was the week of Passover. It's this ancient Jewish celebration they would celebrate when they came out of slavery out of Egypt. So Jerusalem was about 50,000 people at the time, scholars think, and for this Passover celebration, everyone from around, around the country is coming to Jerusalem. So scholars think over 150,000 people are descending on Jerusalem. So I was trying to think, I meant to Google this all week, but I didn't. What's the population of Helena? Does anyone know? 40, I was hoping it was around 50,000. <laughs> so imagine like 100,000 people just coming to Helena for one week, camping out, filling the hotel rooms. Like, it's nuts. Jesus has timed his entrance into Jerusalem with this really chaotic season. And I also noticed, too, it seems like Jesus' behavior is starting to shift in this section, right? Like we've seen in Matthew, there are multiple instances where Jesus maybe heals someone or interacts with someone, and he goes, oh, by the way, don't tell anyone about this, or don't tell anyone who I am. And yet, here in this section, we have Jesus riding in, and there's people spreading their cloaks on the road, and they've cut branches, and they've spread them on the road, and crowds are shouting, and the city doesn't like know who he is. They say, who is this? And the crowds are shouting back. So it's chaos. It's just this really tumultuous event. So Jesus gets in Jerusalem, and he goes straight to the center of power in Israel at the time. He goes to the temple. So what's happening at the temple? What is going on at the temple here? I think before I really started to study this section in these past few weeks, I've been doing a lot of reading, before I would look at this interaction at the temple and I thought, well, maybe it's a justification for violence or anger. But I think there's a lot more happening. Like there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye, right? Jesus is brilliant, and what he's doing is he uses all of these Old Testament scriptures to kind of bring into play right now. So everything, if you notice, everything Jesus says when he is at the temple is a quote from an Israelite prophet. So he's using this technique called remez. And so this technique was used by 
teachers and rabbis at the time, and they would use a tiny like verse or sentence out of the scriptures, knowing that they assumed that their audience had this full understanding of the text. And so by citing this one little verse or one line, they would know that their audience could create a more full meaning of what's happening. So for example, if I say, I have a dream, what do you think of? think of Martin Luther King Jr., you think of maybe civil rights, the 60s. So all I have to say is four words, and then out comes kind of a deeper cultural meaning or understanding of what's happening. Or another example, I asked a friend this week, I ran this by her, and I'm like, does this sound good? What, what would you say? <laughs> she just looked at me and shouted, pivot! <laughs> <laughs> so you laugh because you know there's like a whole show and this whole f- hilarious scene with Ross and what, who else is there, I don't know, but There's this whole scene, right? So one word brings about this whole kind of cultural meaning and understanding of what else is happening. So Jesus is doing the same thing here. So he says, so he enters the temple courts, he drove out all who were buying and selling there, overturned the tables of the money changers and the, the seats of those selling doves, and he says, oh, where are we? Okay, there we are. He says it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. So where have we heard this before? This first section, house of prayer, is out of Isaiah. So it's from the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 56, he writes, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I gather others to them besides those already gathered. So he's referencing this, this prophet Isaiah in this section of the text. What else does Jesus say? You're making it a den of robbers. Where would they have heard that before? They would have heard it from Jeremiah. Jeremiah has this speech where God says, go to the temple and say this. And it's a big, long speech, but just to kind of sum up so we understand where we're at, this is part of Jeremiah's speech to those at the temple. And Jeremiah says, here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal? Will you murder? Commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come, stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers to you in this sight? to you in your sight. I too am watching, says the Lord. So the priests know exactly what Jesus is saying, right? They know exactly, because of this technique, Ramez, they know exactly the context of what Jesus is saying and what is he doing? He's calling them out. He's saying, you leaders of Israel, you chief priests, you go about your day and you you murder and lie and steal and then you come into the temple and you go, oh, wait, we're here, it's fine, everything's good, look, the temple's shiny, it looks great, we're here, nothing to see here, it's fine. It's all about appearances, it's all good. So what else? There's a little bit more happening here. What do we know about the temple and the layout of the temple? So Adam's gone through this in detail, so really quickly, um, this Herod's temple, there would be different places for kind of different people groups. The priests have their spots, the Jewish men have a spot, Jewish women have a courtyard, and then there's also a court for Gentiles or non-Jewish people to come worship. 
And so what is happening, we know that Caiaphas, the chief priest, has since moved these, these markets. I call it a market, um, but it's probably more like a 4-H fair because there's a lot of animals because they would sacrifice animals for Passover, like lambs or doves. So he's moved all of these animals and this marketplace from outside of the temple to inside the temple courtyard. And he moved him into the court of the Gentiles, this place that was meant for non-Jewish people to come and worship. So if we know that, then our quote from Isaiah 56, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, makes a lot more sense. Like there's no room in the temple for all nations to be there. And it kind of makes a lot more sense now why Jesus is so mad. I think it's more about the location of what's happening rather than like this market because they would have had to come to the temple, they would have had to change their money, they would have had to buy a lamb or a dove to sacrifice, like that was part of the temple system at this time, but it wasn't meant to be in the temple where all people were meant to worship. So what's happened is they've moved this market from outside the temple, inside the temple, the priests are gaining a profit, they're using their power to exclude people and take advantage of them, and Jesus is done, he's calling them out. And what else does he say? He's not quite done. So the blind and the lame come into the temple, he cures them, and the chief priests and scribes saw all these amazing things, and they say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yes, have you never read? I love that. They would have obviously read it. Have you never read? Out of the mouths and infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. That's a reference back to Psalms. So out of the mouths of infants, we see that in Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth, mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. Oof, did you catch it? He's implying that the chief priests are enemies of God. He's just done with this whole charade and he's calling them out. So let's move on to on from our temple scene. So Jesus leaves and then he comes back the next day and he encounters a fig tree. I've never known what to do with this section of text, right? It seems like he's hungry, there's no fruit, he gets mad and he curses a tree. Like it's very bizarre. But in the context of our temple story and he's calling the chief priests out for being all about appearances, all about looking good, it starts to make a little more sense. So he sees this fig tree He sees this fig tree by the side of the road. He goes up to it and finds nothing at all on it but leaves. So it looks good. Like from a distance, this tree looks really good. It looks full of life. And then he gets up close and there's no fruit. There's no substance. And so I think what's happening here is it's just this other instance to kind of explain or show his disciples the gravity of what's happening here. Remember, Jesus has days left on earth, right? These kingdoms are clashing and he's communicating the gravity of the situation. He's also not the first prophet to compare Israel to a fruitless tree. If we look in the prophet of Micah, 
There's a poem in my Bible. The heading is called Israel's Misery. I know those headings are added later, but I like how it kind of sums up the section. Micah 7, woe is me, for I have become like one who after the summer fruit has been gathered, after the vintage has been gleaned, finds no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe fig for which I hunger. The faithful have disappeared from the land and there is no one who is left upright. So he curses the fig tree, it withers, and then he goes on and says one of the most confusing things, I think. Jesus answers them, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. What mountain are they looking at? It's a specific mountain. So they're looking at the temple. They're looking at the temple mountain. And essentially Jesus is saying, we've seen this before, right? The story of Israel in the, ancient, in the Old Testament is one of religious leaders failing, failing over and over, right? The temple was meant to be a place where God and people communed together, where heaven and earth met, and the leaders were supposed to be a part of facilitating that, and that hasn't happened. They've used their power to take advantage of people and to exclude, and Jesus is calling it out. He's saying this isn't fine, like things are gonna happen and it's, we're coming to a head, right? So we've got these two kingdoms, appearance and substance. So I, I got really into the first half of Matthew 21, so if you wanna know more about the second half, listen to the podcast, it's the, the Tim Mackey podcast, it's really great. So appearance and substance, what does this have to do with us? How do we live a life of substance? How do we live a life uh, that's reflective of Jesus and his character, and not just like the chief priest and one all about appearances. I recently had to read this book, or I got to read this book for class, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit by James K.A. Smith. And it was a really good, the whole book was really good, but I, I referenced one specific chapter just for this message this morning, and it was all about liturgies and specifically secular liturgies. So hang with me, it'll make sense in a second. But he defines liturgy, what is a liturgy? He defines a liturgy as a ritual or a tradition or a behavior that is loaded with an ultimate story and an ultimate meaning about who we are and what we're for. So for me it was easier to think of maybe a religious liturgy like the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a behavior, it's a tradition, it's something we say that's loaded with this ultimate story about who we are and what we're for as Christ followers. Or maybe you've been using like the Anglican Rosary. I know I, I was doing pretty good at it and I kept it in my winter coat pocket and it's still in a winter coat pocket now. <laughs> so that's like, that's a tradition, right? It's a tradition that's loaded with this ultimate story about who we are and what we're for as Christ followers. So what about a secular liturgy? In the book, he used the example of a mall, and I, don't, I couldn't name the last time I was in a mall, um, so I was thinking about consumerism. I don't know what it looks like for you, but for me, it's the little Amazon app on my phone. How many of you have the Amazon app on your phone? I know, right? It's about opening the app, scrolling, comparing, looking at all the reviews, reading all the reviews. It's a ritual, it's a behavior that says a lot about who we are as a people group, as a nation. Did you know the US is 5% of the world's population but consumes 24% of the world's energy? Right? Consumerism is a story about who we are and what we're about. 
I was also thinking about social media. For me, it's Instagram, right? It's this ritual, it's behavior. You get on and you scroll and it's all about appearances and how we can kind of appear or look or craft our, our brand or whatever to one another. So the habits, you go on this next quote, the habits we've acquired shape how we perceive the world, which in turn disposes us to act in certain ways. So how do we attain a habit? I would also argue that you could say like the liturgies that we're a part of, the behaviors that we're a part of, the traditions that we're a part of, acquire, as we acquire, perceive how we shape and act in the world. So how do we attain a habit? What does that look like? I think it's as simple as practice, doing, doing. And I was thinking about, for me, learning how to drive. I mean, if you're teaching someone how to drive or your driver's ed or you're figuring out how to drive yourself, thinking about this behavior of learning how to drive, for me, it was kind of a painful process. So I was learning how to drive like 15 years ago and my mom taught me and she was not a chill driver teacher at all. Like she had the white knuckle grip on the handle and she did the ghost braking thing with her foot in the passenger seat. So for me, as practicing driving was stressful and there was so much to think about and so much to pay attention to. What's, what's happening in front of your car? What's happening on the side? Looking in the rear view mirror for once in a while. Remember to use your blinker when you're gonna turn. Watch out for the kids on the bike over there. Like it's pretty overwhelming, right? So one afternoon, my mom, my sister and I were gonna run errands and my mom said, you drive, you need the practice. So I'm driving and my mom is a stress ball in the passenger seat. My sister gets in, and I have a younger sister, about three years younger than me, and she gets in the back seat. She's wearing her helmet. (laughs) She sits in the middle of the back seat and explains to me that that's the safest spot in the car, and she's brought, like, her bedding from her bed and wrapped herself in her blankets. And we go about this stressful afternoon, and how many of you are younger siblings? Like, I think your existence is to make our existence stressful. (laughs) And so I remember getting home that afternoon and I went, I'm never driving, I'm just gonna walk the rest of my life. I'm just gonna walk, it'll be easier. But do you think about now, all those years of practice, it's habit to just get in my car and go from point A to point B. Like, I still do all those things. I still look in my mirrors and check my blind spots and use my blinker most of the time. But now it's habit. I don't have to think so much about it. So I wanna go back to our original theme, appearance versus substance. How do we live this life of substance? What if it's as simple as paying attention to the liturgies we're a part of, the practices that we engage in? I think this morning, really, I just wanted to put that in the forefront of our mind and just thinking about how our behaviors and what the traditions we're a part of and the behaviors we engage in, how that can kind of lead into the rest of our lives. What if it's about substance more than appearances? So the band can come back up. I'm just gonna wrap up. The band can come up and ushers, you can get ready for communion. Um, But I just wanted to end on this quote. This quote says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. What if our deepest desire as a Christ follower was to live a life that is reflective of who he is and what he's about? And what if those deepest desires then are supposed to lead into how we live our lives?
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.